Hello, my name is Justin Kluwer, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today we're doing a two-fisted director, Phil Carlson. What what a two-fisted name, Phil. Phil Carlson had a long career in Hollywood, making B movies and generally disreputable popular entertainment. And first of all. A great deal of his filmography is not very good. Oh, yeah. I was trying to do like calculations and I was like, oof, almost like maybe one fifth of his filmography is good or too great. Well, I mean, I haven't uh, I haven't plundered the depths of it. Maybe some of those Bowery Boys movies are actually great. He made the first Bowery Boys film for Monogram. So he started the trend. That was when the Bowery Boys were the Bowery Boys and not the East Side Kids. Anyway, sorry, getting lost in the weeds already. As we indicated, he started in Poverty Row in the 1940s, made a lot of Charlie Chan mysteries. He even made a movie with the Three Stooges. Later on, you might know him as the director of an Elvis movie called Kid Galahad, or as the director of two of the spy spoofs starring Dean Martin as the groovy secret agent Matt Helm. Terrible. Just not good. Not a laugh to be had. However, when we talk about Phil Carlson, what we're really talking about are a wave of tough and gritty film noirs that he made in the 1950s, as well as the brief resurgence he had towards the end of his life in the 1970s after the blockbuster success of his Again, to use that phrase, two-fisted action movie, Walking Tall. Going right to the beginning of Phil Carlson's career, he represents like my favorite kind of old-time filmmakers who started and did everything, fought their way up until they were finally making the stuff that they wanted to make. We talked about Poverty Row, and he started right at the bottom, according to him, writing jokes for people like Buster Keaton and Abbott and Costello. And after producing voluminous hack work... After learning his trade in the lowest rungs of the Hollywood ecosystem, he eventually ascended to, uh, let's say, the middle rung of the Hollywood ecosystem and was able to forge, however briefly, a personal style, create a wave of films that are distinctly, uniquely Phil Carlson movies, but which are still B-movies, movies that still didn't really carry any whiff of prestige. And, you know, you were saying that this is your favorite kind of director. You know, I love this kind of director, too, because uh, he became a very humble artist, making the kinds of movies that don't get often received as art. He's a filmmaker who very clearly said in interviews that like, you know, I worked at somewhere like Monogram and I would come in after finishing a picture and they'd be like, Phil, get in here. Here's a script that you're going to be directing. Go out and do it. And sometimes it would be like Ladies of the Chorus or sometimes it would be like The Brigand, which is a period swashbuckler, which was not to his strengths. I think what's interesting about Phil Carlson is he likes to say that You know, he would go unprepared, he would shoot stuff, and he would make his days. And that, unlike someone like Ulmer, where you want to look into every one of his films for his personal touch, there are clearly Phil Carlson pictures where he did not care if it was good or not. That if he just got the job done, he could move on to the next thing. Like, you mentioned he made a movie with the Three Stooges. Oh boy, that film is not good. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. So I don't recommend watching all of the Phil Carlson movies. When talking about Carlson's best movies, words like tough and violent often come up. The violent 
violence in his movies is often sadistic, and he often presents it very unsentimentally. But beyond that, I think there's a toughness to everything about his best movies, whether it's the aesthetics or the storytelling or the characterizations or even the actors that he chooses. You know, like he's a good visual director, but he's not a poetic visual director. You don't see a lot of fancy camera movements or, you know, beautiful expressionist shadows in his films. And his actors, they often have faces that are like fucking sandpaper in your eyes. And the characters are morally ambiguous a lot of the times. And more than anything, the toughness of his films, his best films, that is, is in the sense of despair and hopelessness that usually starts to strike around Act Two. Andrew Saris wrote in his book, The American Cinema, Carlson was most personal and most efficient when he dealt with the phenomenon of violence in a world controlled by organized evil. And I think that's very true. What do you say of the comparison between Phil Carlson and someone like Samuel Fuller? And that comparison is even more important because one of the first personal Carlson joints is Scandal Sheet. And that was based on a Fuller novel and that supposedly Fuller hated the movie version so much. And I think that there's a comparison to be drawn. The biggest difference is that Fuller's stuff is larger than life. It is the tabloid material that Fuller seemingly loves so much, and it's pulpy. And the pulpiness, it could be applied to some Carlson joints, but there's also a grittiness to Carlson's film that you don't always see in Fuller's work. Yeah, if I were to try to define the difference between the two of them... Samuel Fuller is the tabloid headline. Phil Carlson is the tabloid article. When I think of Samuel Fuller's direction, I think like punchy in your face, almost like purple prose. Like it just like leaps off of the screen while there is more of a desperation to the work of Carlson. That the violence when it's presented, it's intense in a different way. Yeah, there's a terseness to it. Like I said, a lack of sentimentality. I just want to quote something that Carlson said in an interview in the book Kings of the Bees. He said, I'm not a Peckinpah fan. I think he did some darn nice things before he became violent. Violence for just violence's sake to me on the screen is probably the most horrendous thing you can do. But I think when it belongs, you should show it and you shouldn't pussyfoot around it. You should put it on there the way it happened. When people are shot, they bleed. Like in Sam Fuller's movies, uh, this is me talking again, by the way, you can sense like Fuller kind of cackling along and, and going, that's entertainment in every scene. Whereas with Carlson, like he's just kind of laying it out on a slab for There's you. There's no like, and I'm using this term very specifically like poeticness to the Carlson violence. <laughs> it's mostly like an intensity there that is not like, oh, look how gross it is, but just like you're thrown in there. I think the easiest adjective to use is that Carlson cinema is a sweaty one. Like, literally and figuratively, every character in Carlson's oeuvre when he does these noir films are always drenched in sweat, which, if you think about it, is not something you see that often in cinema. It is a gross thing to see people sweat, which they do in real life, and they would do in almost any situation that you would see in thrillers, noirs, action movies. And yet, unfortunately, in The Wrecking Crew with Dean Martin as Matt He Helm, does not sweat. <laughs> we, we don't see him sweat enough, and I think the movie would be better if we did see him sweat, because you 
you know that that man sweats. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Getting up in his suits, having to cross a room. He's just soaked. First, just a little background about Phil Carlson. He was born and raised in Chicago, born in 1908, studied at the Art Institute in Chicago, but then pursued a law degree in Los Angeles. But when he was in Los Angeles, he supported himself with part-time work at Universal. Very unglamorous work at first, like washing dishes, but eventually he rose through the ranks, working in the editing department, and then eventually working as an assistant director on films like Destry Rides Again and She-Wolf of London. Also, he made a very important ally at the studio. Uh, Do you want to Tell the folks who that ally was. Mr. Lou Costello? <laughs> That's right. They met on the set of In the Navy. So when Carlson went to war in the early 40s, and then he came back in 1944, he gets a call from Lou Costello like, where were you? I was looking for you everywhere. I've got some money to make a picture at Monogram. Uh, I'm going to produce it. I'm not going to have my name on it, though. Uh, do you want to direct it? See, the thing with the story of Carlson's early career being defined as a comedy writer, it's surreal when you watch all of the comedy films that he made later on, which are just bereft of any laughs. Yeah, like a Swing Parade of 1946. Hey, it's our favorite, the Three Stooges. <laughs> and oh no, post-stroke Curly Howard. But anyway, in the 40s, he started making movies for Monogram Pictures, the bottom-rung studio in Hollywood, making, as we said, a lot of Bowery Boys movies, some Charlie Chan movies. He, in his interview in Kings of the Bees, pointed to a movie from 1947 called Black Gold as kind of a turning point in his career. Yeah, it was a film that he was very invested in. It was the story of a Native American played by Anthony Quinn, of course. who wants to train a horse to win the Kentucky Derby. And he was very invested in this picture. It was shot in a cheap color negative. Um, he shot it over an entire year because he wanted to see the seasons change as it happened. And during that time of shooting Black Gold, he shot four other monogram films, you know, just to show his bosses that he can still keep working. Yeah, and he said that it was the first monogram film shot in color. And he also estimated that it was the first of his films, the, certainly the first monogram film, but the first of his films to tackle some sort of social issue, to make a social statement. You can tell in that interview in King of the Bees, any opinion of someone having something good to say about monogram is completely foreign to Phil Carlson. He's like, yeah, it was the best monogram picture that they ever made but what's that saying they never made anything good well i mean spot the lie <laughs> <laughs> wait a minute uh monogram you have that monogram checklist go through all the good ones that you yeah, have yeah a lot, lot of a lot of good ones at monogram the poverty row movies that people like were either from uh, prc or uh republic pictures uh, carlson does say some stuff that makes me want to check out some of the more generic looking ones like the big cat from 1949 which he describes as my answer to John Ford's Grapes of Wrath. And I'm like, wait, what does that mean? Yeah, I also want to check out the one that he said was his first hit, G.I. Honeymoon from 1945. Uh, he said something funny about his first movie, A Wave, a WAC, and a Marine. He said, it was a nothing picture, but I was lucky because it was for Monogram and they didn't understand how bad it was because they had never made anything that was any good. Youch. Well, Carlson just became a 
you know, contract player. Uh, after he left Monogram, he just went from studio to studio, took whatever job came his way. And that's kind of what would define his entire career. And he said in that interview that he liked working for Monogram. They left him alone. It was essentially his film school. He could experiment. And as long as he delivered things on time and on budget, then there was no problem. They had a picture. He says that he hates the fact that the antitrust law went through and that the uh, studios could not own their theaters anymore because he thought that it kept things too focused on the bottom line, which meant that companies like Monogram who just churned out shit to fill the screens had to disappear. Andrew Saras writing about Phil Carlson says that he did nothing particularly notable until uh, 1953 when the movie 99 River Street came out. I know that we both watched it this week. It's a fantastic uh, B-noir about a boxer who, you know, fucked up his last match and is now working as a cab driver finds out that his wife, his long-suffering wife, is having an affair with a jewel thief. The jewel thief quickly murders her and tries to pin the rap on the boxer. Oh, and this takes place all in one night as well. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And it stars John Payne as the boxer with an incredible face on him, just one of many ugly and unglamorous leading men in the films of Phil Carlson. I do think that there is a level of stylishness to the cinema of Phil Carlson, especially in something like 99 River Street. There were like camera moves, like even little subtle ones, low angles tracking across a room as it follows someone that actually took me aback from something out of 1953 where I feel like the noir language is codified and Phil Carlson didn't really follow the rules with this movie and that there's stuff that feels very modern happening within the context of the story as well as violence that takes you aback. If there's one thing that I discovered watching all these Phil Carlson movies in a row is that the man is a master of the fist fight and not the William Whitney like cowboys fist fighting, the sweaty, desperate, this is going to end in a few blows because people are going to bleed from it kind of fist fights. Yeah, and it's weird. I mean, I guess the violence is supposed to be unglamorous and unpleasant, and it is. But like, I love the violence in Phil Carlson's movies. I think because it's it's that way. Like Phil Carlson's like, oh, I'm a pecking paw now. Look what you did to me. Like I'm thinking specifically of that scene in his last movie from 1975, Framed, where Joe Don Baker and that corrupt cop have this incredibly brutal fist fight with each other in Joe Don Baker's garage. Please look it up on YouTube. It's incredible. No, just watch Framed, but we'll get back to that a little bit later Yeah, (laughs) because we got to talk Framed. So yeah, 99 River Street, I think that if you showed it to someone, you were like, this is a Samuel Fuller joint, they'd be like, oh, I believe that, but something feels a little bit different. And I think it is the kind of complexity of these characters. Like John Payne, throughout one 83-minute movie, has so many emotional registers that he goes through, which is like, he's fighting with his wife. He wants to make up. He's angry with her. He also has a circle of friends around him that are supporting him. That in a film filled with so much desperation and loss is kind of refreshing in this kind of noir. Yeah, and you know, when I say that Phil Carlson isn't really an ostentatious visual director, that doesn't mean he's not a good visual director. The camera's always where it needs to be. You pointed out that he's doing a lot of very interesting, subtle things with the camera, but I'm struck by how the movies the movies aren't pretty. They're weirdly beautiful in their way, just in their austerity. In Phil Carlson movies, what you'll notice is oftentimes when someone will cross a street, you'll see the entire street. 
And it's like a wide vista that you wouldn't always expect in these kind of movies that are usually uh, trapped in studio backlots. And that Phil Carlson is a guy that he liked to say that, like, I'm going for realness in my movies. And that translates in a number of different ways. But one of them is the way that, like, you feel that these characters are traversing a real city. Like, there's not that much unreality that comes into it, even though that because he is a filmmaker who's not working with that much money, there will be some odd things that come up, especially in something like Phoenix City Story, which is probably his most famous film. And probably his best, I would say, at least my favorite of his films. Oh, I agree. I mean, there's no other film, especially from this era, that feels like Phoenix City Story. So it opens with a 10-minute newsreel. Skip it if you're watching it for the first time. Yeah, not very good. Just with a reporter talking to all these people who remember the time that martial law came to Phoenix City, Alabama. And eventually, though, the movie starts and it is a I guess, fact-based docudrama, although, as I understand it, it's not it's not all that accurate. Well, that was like the big way to get the press interested, where they'd be like, not only did we shoot in the right place, we also got the clothes the people were wearing when they went through these events. And it's like, okay, okay, I'll see your movie. I'll see your movie. <laughs> Trying to sell it like this. But, you know, Phoenix City used to be a good town, but it seems that a red light district has emerged. There's a club on 14th Street, Uh, that has gambling and prostitution and assorted vice. And what's worse than that is the people who run that club, the the mobsters, they run this town. They control the courts. They control the police. They control the politicians. What are we going to do? Well, you're going to get one of Phoenix City's sons, John McIntyre, who just got back from a war-torn country, and he's going to get his dad to run as a DA, and they're going to clean up this town, right? Without any problems. Not as easy as that, because as we said the mobsters control every aspect of this town don't want to spoil how it turns out but the middle section of this movie well the middle section and the last section of the movie also where you see the force that the mob exerts over this town and you see that they are willing to do anything you know some of the most upsetting scenes i think still in any movie ever made unfold in this like the scene with the little black girl in this film i think is a quintessential uh Uh, Phil Carlson scene. Well, it is so shocking, and it is shown in such detail for something coming out of 1955. I mean, it doesn't revel in it, but just the way that it plays out, it just catches the viewer's breath because you're like, I can't believe this is happening and I'm seeing it play out like this. This is insane. This is where the Carlson touch comes in. You can think of how a lot of other directors would have shown that scene. There are some directors who would have just alluded to it, Like, you know, you would have seen the little girl and then it would have cut. And then they talk about it. They're like, I can't believe what they did to this person. Or you can imagine somebody doing it in, frankly, a more ostentatious or sensational way. Like Assault on Precinct 13 of the little girl being shot with her ice cream. Yeah, but in this one, it's just like, again, he he lays it out on a slab for you. It's just there. Take it or leave it. This is what it looks like. He tosses it out of a car. (laughs) Like awful, but not reveling in Mm -hmm. it. Uh, Yeah, that's like the fine line. Carlson is walking, right? Because for something to be intense, you can't just show the worst thing because a viewer will grow numb to it and be disconnected by the events going on screen. What Carlson does in Phoenix City Story is he finds a way to keep the viewer engaged with everything that's happening, even as the awful stuff piles on and on and on. There's an assassination that happens in this movie that you know it's coming, but it happens in such a vicious way 
that you're like, oh my God, even though it's just guns going off. I also thought it was interesting how the film ends because I guess you could say it has a certain reactionary streak. It's like, okay, we got to have law and order in this town. Look at where the barons of vice have got us. Somebody's got to do something and the law isn't containing them. And then the film ends, spoiler, with martial law being declared and the narrator character, the POV character, says something like, well, it may not have been the law that my dad fought for, but it's the only law they understood, the law that comes from the barrel of a gun. It doesn't exactly feel as triumphant as it might. And in fact, his later movie, Walking Tall, which has a very similar plot to Phoenix City Story, ends in a similar way. I had forgotten that about Walking Tall. Like, Walking Tall, I guess jumping ahead a little bit, was this big silent majority hit from the early 70s. It was part of that wave of movies like Billy Jack and Dirty Harry about how, you know, what we really need is a guy with a big stick to come into these blighted areas and just fuck shit up and get those smut peddlers out. And that's how people interpreted it. They're like, oh, yeah, we love Buford Pusser (laughs) coming in with his big stick and he deals out justice. But like that last chunk of walking tall is pretty miserable yeah it's not as cathartic as you remember it you know that's not to pretend that walking tall is any kind of like progressive movie or anything but you know it's uh although i I guess it is in certain regards i think that phil carlson viewed himself as a progressive director within the context of these noirs and action films that he was making yeah i mean i was gonna say that in walking tall like there's the black character it's kind of corny like walking tall it's kind of a badly written movie to be honest it has all that like hollywood schmaltz and shit in it. I mean, there's also black characters in Phoenix City Story and Framed as well, which was his last film. Yeah, so that's him trying to be progressive within the context of these movies. And also, I mean, you could watch something like the Phoenix City Story, and if you wanted to kind of project a leftist version of the story onto it, you could. Like, it's a movie about how the titans of whatever the dominant industry is of that moment have justice and the politicians in their pocket and like there's no fighting city hall yeah that's what it's about it's not necessarily about the moral outrage of gambling and you know vice going on all that other stuff it's mostly about those people in power are then abusing what they have it's not good enough they need to beat people down and then they're in control so you can't even do anything about it i think that's what interests carlson more than anything than moral outrage that you could if you're a right-wing viewer read upon something like the phoenix city story so after phoenix city carlson made a bunch of interesting films i know you watched the brothers rico and you enjoyed yeah, that I, I enjoyed the brothers rico very much i watched scandal sheet as well and i mean i i realize he was a director for hire but clearly he had an affinity and did his best work on scripts of like these very corrupt systems that seem insurmountable and how do you surmount them i watched a gunman's walk uh, a few months ago when it has that same kind of angle on it which is that tab hunter is like a rich fail son of the town baron that kind of owns everything. And so it's about a father coming to terms with his son being just like trash. And what will he do about that? So it's not as like black and white as a lot of those kind of pictures usually play out. And I think that's Carlson's favorite milieu, which is you look at it and you see that there could probably be an easy like A to B, but it's colored along the way. And that's where he gets to shine. The 60s, 
not that exciting a decade for Phil Carlson. I mean, maybe there are people who know his work better than me who were able to point to some hidden gems in the 60s. Like, I don't know, maybe The Young Doctors from 1961 is a lost masterpiece. Who knows? He did direct the pilot movie of The Untouchables, which was renamed The Scarface Mob when it was theatrically released. So he does have that under his belt, a TV show that I have never watched. Then in 1973 came Walking Tall, a very loose biopic starring Joe Don Baker, as Sheriff Buford Pusser, a Tennessee sheriff who uh, came in and, much like the Phoenix City story, cleaned up the vice and sin from the small Tennessee town. And uh, this movie... I mean, people forget, like, I feel like people don't really watch or talk about Walking Tall all that much anymore, but it was a monster hit in the early 70s. And it should be noted that Walking Tall was Phil Carlson's escape from the studio system that this is a regional film that was distinctly designed to play in the drive-ins. And so its budget level, the people that are acting in it reflect that. It's kind of Phil Carlson having another go at something like Phoenix City Story within the confines of what people expect within a early 70s drive-in picture. I had a pretty good time revisiting it this week. The movie feels authentic it has a great sense of tennessee atmosphere in it like it it doesn't feel like a hollywood movie in terms of its production values it does feel like a hollywood movie in terms of its script like they embellish a lot of buford pusser's life and add a lot of like ridiculous characters and ridiculous scenes to it it's not quite as uncompromising a story as some of the early phil carlson movies are it's got a great joe don baker performance though and it does have a lot of great moments of just pure blunt force Phil Carlson power. Like I'm thinking of the scene where Buford Pusser's wife is shot. Jodan Baker and Elizabeth Hartman are in the car together. They're just having a nice drive and the gangster's car comes up behind him. You see, you know, from the front seat, like the shotgun come up and then it cuts to the back seat. You just like see Elizabeth Hartman's head get shot, like just smothered in blood all of a sudden totally cold, totally unsentimental, very devastating, I But think. beyond Walking Tall, Phil Carlson still had one more movie in him, and that was his follow-up to Walking Tall, Framed, from 1975, reuniting once again with Joe Don Baker, shooting once again in Tennessee. And oh boy, is this movie great. Oh yeah, I mean, this is this is the good one. Like, this is way better than Walking Tall and deserves to have been as big a hit. Joe Don Baker, he runs a club, he's a gambler, and he gets framed for the murder of a, of a cop. Which he did kill, we should point out, in the movie. He did kill, but it was in self-defense. They were going to pin another crime on him. So he spends four years in the slammer because everyone, the police, his attorney, the politicians... The criminals, they're all in each other's pocket. Do you think that, like, Carlson's obsession with the system being against him could also be echoes of his bad experiences working for studios? <laughs> that's that's fine. Everybody's working for themselves, and they're there to put the individual down. Like, he talks about in his interview, he loved working at Monogram. They let him do whatever he wanted, didn't get in his way. But the studio, ugh, that's a whole other story. That's interesting. Uh, I like to think that that's true. And at the same time, while the Phoenix 
Phoenix City story is anti-mob, this one is pro-mob. It's the only way that Joe Don Baker is able to do what he does. Yeah, it's true. Like, the only way to fight City Hall is to fight City Hall in this movie. So after four years, he comes out of the can and he just goes on a fucking revenge spree one after another. I mean, how about that train stunt that we see? Absolute insanity. One of the craziest stunts that I've ever seen in a movie. And the violence in this film. I mean, that scene towards the end when Joe Don like shoots off a guy's ear and you just see the ear dangling from for like the whole rest of the scene every time you see it it just looks grosser and grosser jodon drives off and the guy starts yelling at him i'm gonna kill you i'm gonna kill you and then jodon drives back and says you know what i believe you and he shoots him (laughs) just in cold blood what a movie moment how come frame doesn't have the same reputation that something like walking tall does i mean i think jodon baker like is the perfect phil carlson star because he's you know, intensely charismatic and devoid of any glamour whatsoever. Just a big hunk of man meat. And I will not tolerate any Joe Don Baker Mitchell related ridicule. Thank you very much. Oh, you're not going to get it from me. Joe Don, he's my hero. And uh, you know what's frustrating too? I, I have this is off topic, but I haven't seen a single like good Joe Don Baker interview anywhere. Like, This man worked with Carlson. He worked with Peckinpah. He's still alive, isn't he? He's 85. Yeah, I checked. He worked with Scorsese, Tim Burton, many notable directors. Like, we got to get his testimony. I wonder if he was just really difficult to work with and stuff like the whole Mitchell incident seemed to have really burned him. I guess. I mean, he really had a renaissance in the 90s, though, when he was in one movie after another. I mean, he's in everyone's favorite James Bond movie, Goldeneye. That's right. Bill Carlson. I think that he may be one of the few directors who, as he was starting to, like, daughter into old age, directing stuff like Ben, the sequel to Willard, he pulled himself out of it and knocked two, or at least one, out of the park. Walking Tall and Framed, especially Framed, frankly, are, like, great final films for him because... You know, they're, they're the final films that you want your favorite director to make. They carry on the themes of the best movies, and they also kind of strip his style down to its essence. Yeah, like working in the exploitation driving circuit, like it seemed to have given a whole new set of tools for Phil Carlson to work with, and they were exactly the perfect ones for him to deliver exactly what he was best at. Well, that's Phil Carlson. Uh, God, I just want to go watch some more Phil Carlson movies. I can't believe it. Usually I'm burned out of the director after we're done with them. But I'm shocked that you didn't watch Alexander the Great, the 60-minute pilot that he made that starred William Shatner, Adam West, John Cassavetes, Joseph Cotton. Oh, the the hits keep coming. My God, maybe I should uh, watch that later tonight. I mean, you know it's going to be awful. (laughs) Just a slog. Justin, do we have any letters? Yes, we do have letters, Will, and our first letter is from Solo Fong, and it goes, Hi, I love your podcast, which I've only recently begun listening to, but I plan to finish in due time. Especially enjoy your fervent dissection of Hong Kong cinema, of which I am also a big fan. I've been trying to listen to all those first, and I'm glad you covered quite a few of the major figures, and even some obscure ones. I'm no stranger, but I learn something new every episode. Do you plan to ever cover Jimmy Wang Yu? Being one of the early actors to kickstart the Kung Fu craze with a larger-than-life persona off-screen, this man from Hong Kong seems... I see what you did there. Seems worthy of a fun-filled episode. Directed a few amazing gems behind the camera, too. Another area I'd love to hear covered is the girls with guns genre. So many underappreciated actresses. So many death-defying stunts. Devil Hunters in particular deserve the mention. Love the Ross Rock episode, by the way. Solomon. Well, Solomon, I have some good news and some bad news. The good news is 
Me and Will did a 90-minute episode on Jimmy Wang Q. The bad news is you have to buy the Blu-ray Blood of the Dragon at GoldenNinjaVideo.com if you want to hear it. Yeah, we did a commentary track on Blood of the Dragon. I mean, maybe we'll eventually return to Jimmy Wang Yu. We love Jimmy Wang Yu. We love talking about him. He's a very colorful figure. But yes, we talked for 90 straight minutes about him on that commentary track. And, uh, you know, in preparing for that, developed a whole new love and appreciation for Jimmy Wang Yu. We talked about Jimmy Wang Yu a lot on the commentary track you can find on Fantasy Mission Force. It's on the Patreon. And I feel that since then, we watched all the early films that he directed and saw, like, how energetic and pretty much revolutionary he was trying to be as an action director. I think when we did that fantasy Mission Force commentary, I'd seen a lot of Jimmy Wang Yu movies, but I hadn't seen some of the best ones. I hadn't seen One-Armed Boxer. I hadn't seen Beach of the War Gods. I'd seen like or the stuff that he made with Low Way. Yeah, real trash. <laughs> or, the, or the first one, One-Armed Swordsman, the one that really... Uh, elevated him to stardom it's all right it's part of its time i really love the chinese boxer which was one of the earlier like no weapons fist fighting movies and jimmy wang Yu directs that film which is a shaw brothers production like no other shaw brothers film ever basically like sam peckinpah like just slow motion where you wouldn't expect it the editing rhythms are rapid fire that movie's great and not enough people talk about it i think it's because that he's such an egomaniac that you know that's what we tend to go towards is like you know master of the flying guillotine where jimmy wang Yu directs writes produce and stars in like seven different roles i mean i love that film too i mean what we also tend to talk about with jimmy wang Yu is his alleged mob connections oh yeah we love that <laughs> so and girls with guns genre i don't know if we do a whole episode on that but you know we did since ross rock and there's other topics around it especially some of the women action stars that came out of hong kong it's tough to do actors though like even since ross rock we're like oh we're struggling here to get through at least 25 minutes so uh thank you very much for the letter and what are we doing on our patreon this week will well this week we are mourning the loss of dmx by talking about two of his most notable films. We're talking about the classic Belly, directed by Hype Williams, and also talking about the not-so-classic Cradle to the Grave, co-starring Jet Li. We are not big DMX fans, but we have a lot of fun talking about those two movies, especially Belly. And by the way, when he says we're not big DMX fans, uh, that just means that we're not all that familiar with his oeuvre. Not that we don't like him. He, seem, he seems like a good guy. Check that out on Patreon at patreon.com slash Club. $5 a month. And you'll get that and our entire back catalog. So, Will, what are we doing next week? Next week, we're talking about uh, another two-fisted auteur, but one who is a little more recent in the popular memory. That is Tony Scott, the brother of Ridley and the director of such films as Top Gun, Days of Thunder, Beverly Hills Cop 2, and such late career masterworks as Unstoppable. Are you a Tony Scott fan? No. All right. So this will be fun going into this. We have gone on record saying that we find Top Gun not good in our opinion. (laughs) But here's the thing. Tony Scott has huge fans, especially on like film twitter or movie had that article called like smearing the senses uh tony scott as action painter on film and i you know i'm like i'm saying that as if i'm making fun of it but i'm not actually making fun of it i want to understand that a little i more. think that my relationship with tony scott has been i really want to like these movies i like the idea of his aesthetic i love reading his interviews i would often watch them and be like I don't know. I don't like this very much. (laughs) Yeah, but I hope to be converted, you know? So we'll probably watch something from earlier in his career, and we'll probably watch something from later in his career, too. Do you want to go deep down the Tony Scott uh, rabbit hole? Like the one that, like, he went full on all of his late period editing techniques? Because I'm talking about a movie I know you've probably seen. 
Domino. I have not seen Domino. and You have not seen Domino? Where were you in 2005? That was appointment viewing written by Richard Donnie Darko Kelly. I definitely think we should watch Domino. So yes, let's do that. On the DVD, there's a commentary with Richard Kelly, Tony Scott, and Tom Waits. (laughs) Oh man, three alphas. Yeah, so that's what we'll be doing next week. So until then, my name's Justice Aglou. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Before we continue, I'd like to thank some of our new Patreon subscribers, who include Adam Rockwood, Emily Lecfi, Ian Davis, MK, and Dan Kapar. Thank you very much for becoming patrons. We could not continue to do this without you. And we now return you to your regular scheduled programming. Will, are you excited? Kevin Smith is redefining the way films are distributed. <laughs> All you had to do was say the name Kevin Smith, and I started laughing because I saw this. I saw this news story too. How about you explain to the good people what he's doing? You want me to try to explain this? <laughs> so Kevin Smith is distributing his new film. Kilroy was here. Okay, and I should point out, as people that are yelling at their, I don't know, podcast player or computer, that like we said three weeks ago, no more Kevin Smith talk. <laughs> we can't help ourselves. Well, actually, I do think this deserves meriting because what he's doing i've never seen anything like it and you kind of got to hand it to him like he's somebody who despite not having a whole lot of talent has managed to stick around for almost 30 years is constantly reinventing himself constantly finding new ways to stay afloat in this uh, crazy business we call show i mean he is talented as a performer and personality there's no doubt about that because he wouldn't be around that's that's very true he's a great speaker. T- talented as a filmmaker not good <laughs> not good although you know what i'm going to say about him as a filmmaker having uh, recently watched several of his films again his movies are bad in a way that's very unique to him he's he's a bad bad auteur like nobody else does bad movies quite like him (laughs) and i have to say i still find myself occasionally going to them because it's like this may be a bad flavor but it's the only place i can get this flavor (laughs) so are you counting out down the days until kilroy is here is coming the anthology film based on the classic world war ii meme kilroy well, guy with his nose peeking over the fence. Well, you say that it's coming, but the crazy thing about this new deal is it may not even come because he's selling this movie as an NFT. This is the first time that's ever happened. Non-fungible token? Yeah, and don't ask me to explain what an NFT is. It's very complicated. It seems like a big hoax. Yeah, it's basically like you give somebody something that has an identifier, and that identifier is so complicated, it takes like huge computer power to keep it running and to keep it individual and not be able to be replicated. I may have gotten that wrong. It doesn't matter. It's dumb. And it's the new fad that's happening in this month. So basically, like, using that system, they can own a GIF or they can own a piece of virtual art because they're the only one that has that token. And I understand that there are things about it that are environmentally harmful. Yeah, because the computers that have to run, it's so much processing power that like i guess it can't be hacked that's why it's so complicated it creates a lot of bad stuff for the environment so anyway he is selling this movie kilroy is here as an nft which means that whoever is the highest bidder whoever buys this 
they've bought the movie. They've quite literally bought the movie, and they can do whatever they want with it. So you like Martin Shkreli, that guy who bought bought that Wu-Tang album and vowed never to release it? You could conceivably buy Kevin Smith's new movie and just own it for yourself forever. Kevin Smith is going to release his own movie if somebody buys it and holds on to it. There is no doubt about that. I I mean, I I, I certainly hope. Yeah, he has such a sterling track record when it comes to distribution stuff. There's probably some fine print. Oh yeah, is he going to buy the non-fungible token? himself like he did last time right with the red state thing where he bought like he owns the theatrical rights for red state but he sold the video and streaming rights to lionsgate so maybe like the person who buys it will own you know the movie but he can just distribute it himself after that (laughs) kevin smith well who knows the way he's selling it right now is that whoever buys this can distribute it however they want and i don't know i'm i'm kind of amused by the whole thing i think it's funny I mean, first of all, you shouldn't do an NFT if it's that harmful for the environment. I have some info here on NFT. The carbon emissions from Bitcoin mining alone in China, which accounts for 75% of Bitcoin blockchain operations globally, is projected at 130 million metric tons by 2024. More than the overall emissions by the Netherlands, Spain, or the Czech Republic. Oh my God. Um, Okay, pretty bad, I gotta say. I was gonna gonna say you gotta hand it to Kevin Smith, but maybe you don't gotta hand it to him. You know who you gotta hand it to is someone like um, Tim Heidecker, who they also released an NFT and then they went oh wait no we thought this was a joke it's bad we're taking it down yeah yeah i i respect them for that but if you're a loyal import cinema club listener you should get the nft episode we're putting out (laughs) (laughs) thumb wars by the way did you see also as part of that kevin smith announcement he's like starting something called like jay and silent bob's a crypto stash or something like he's he's going full into the crypto market terrible (laughs) just awful yeah i mean what a guy yeah we'll keep talking about him he's got us till we're dead